Welcome to Good Girls Talk About Sex. I'm sex educator and sexual communication coach, Leah Carey, and this is a place to share conversations with all sorts of women about their experience of sexuality. These are unfiltered conversations between adult women talking about sex. If anything about the previous sentence offends you, turn back now. And if you're looking for a trigger warning, you're not going to get it from me. I believe that you are stronger than the trauma you have experienced. I have faith in your ability to deal with things that upset you. Sound good? Let's start the show. Hey, friends. You know, I rarely bring on expert guests. And the reason is that this show was created to feature your voices and stories, not professionals talking about how to give a better blowjob. But every once in a great while, I'll bring on a women's health provider who I know personally and who I trust to answer specific questions about vaginal and sexual health. And today I'm going to introduce you to my primary care provider, Maya Strom. And we're going to talk about the hormonal and vaginal changes women go through during perimenopause and menopause. I met Maya about a year and a half ago. I wanted to establish primary care with somebody new. And I had, you know, I've had a whole range of providers through my life because I've moved around a lot. And as I thought back, I realized that the two who I felt the most safe with, the two who I trusted the most, were both APRNs, which stands for Advanced Practice Registered Nurse, which, according to the internet, means that they have a Master's of Science in Nursing or a Doctor of Nursing Practice. For people outside the United States, I don't know what the equivalent to an APRN is, So I went on a search for APRNs here in Portland, and to my great delight, I found Maya. It was obvious from the very first moment I met her that this was exactly the right fit for me. She's smart, she's gentle, she's deeply caring. I feel so safe in her hands. And as a side note, if you don't have that type of relationship with your care provider, consider looking around. I know that not everybody has that privilege based on the incredibly fucked up insurance situation here in the United States. But if you have the ability to look for a different care provider, I hope that you will. You deserve to have a provider who you feel safe with and where you feel really seen and heard. Anyway, so I'm at my first visit with Maya And she asked me where I was in terms of menses. I told her that I was starting to have some perimenopausal symptoms and asked a couple of questions about what to expect from my vulva and vagina over the next 10 years. I mean, after all, I spent four plus decades having terrible sex. Now that I finally get to enjoy it, I want to maintain that for as long as possible through my 50s and 60s and even my 70s if I can. Maya started explaining some basic vaginal physiology to me, and she included her 
theory about why so many women in their 40s and 50s stop giving a fuck. And that was the moment when I knew I had to have her on the podcast. Maya Strom is a family nurse practitioner with a doctorate of nursing practice, and she's board certified through the American Association of Nurse Practitioners. She practices under the name Isla Health, that's I-L-A Health, in Portland, Oregon. Now, if you're in Portland and suddenly have an intense interest in booking an appointment with Maya, you should know that at the time of this recording, her practice is full. But she does keep a waiting list, and it's right on her website. So go to mayastrom.com and get yourself on the waiting list. And when you do meet her, tell her you heard her on Good Girls Talk About Sex. I am so pleased to introduce Maya Strom. Maya, I am so excited to talk to you today. I've been looking forward to this for a while um, so that people know who you are. Uh, This is Maya Strom, family nurse practitioner. You have a doctorate in nursing practice, and you work here in Portland, Oregon, practicing at Isla Health. Uh, That's I-L-A Health. Um, And you would not be allowed to confirm this, but I can confirm that you are my healthcare practitioner. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Uh, Which is how we came to have a conversation uh, during my first visit with you a few months ago about female health, about female reproductive health specifically. And as much as I know about the communication aspect of sex and the consent aspect of sex, I don't know a ton about the physical and the physiology piece of women's health. And you told me so much stuff I had never heard before. So I am so excited for you to share that with with, uh, my listeners. So welcome. Thank you. Well, I'm excited to talk about it. Any opportunity I have to talk about sex and perimenopausal and menopausal health, I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Awesome. Yeah. So I guess first, my question is, what is your interest in this? Like, how did you get interested in this particular aspect of medicine? Um, well, I've always been interested in working with women, spe- people who specifically identify as women um, back since since I was probably 20 years old. So I have a history of um, uh, being in the Peace Corps in uh, a place called Vanuatu, which is in the South Pacific. And I had an opportunity to do, to do work on some reproductive health education while I was there. And it really sparked my interest um, in working specifically around issues of reproductive health, um, like reducing transmission of HIV and sexually transmitted infections, and also talking to young people about pregnancy prevention. Um, and when I came home from the Peace Corps, I was pretty determined that I wanted, that was my career. Like that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to work, um, At the time, when I was 20, I wanted to work as a midwife um, and and thought that that would be my avenue into working in reproductive health education and pregnancy prevention and reproductive rights and all of those things. You said that you have a specific interest in working with women, and then you revise that to say people who identify as women. So does that mean people who have vaginas or people who identify as female? Both. Okay. I mean, I do specific, I would, I will say that the majority of my practice 
are people who have vaginas. Um, and I do love working with all people who identify. I mean, I love working with all people. Um, I often work with a lot of people who are non-binary and have vaginas. Um, and I um, really enjoy working with that population as well. I, I do I do trans medicine as well, transgender medicine as well. Um, but I've my term I'm now 43 years old, 44 years old, and kind of grew up in this very binary culture of you know, speaking about men and women. And I, I'm trying to be more conscious with my language. And I'm trying to start uh, consciously being less binary in the way that I speak, because I want to be inclusive. And I also, I see everybody, uh-huh. basically. Yeah. Um, but my experience for the last 20 plus years has mostly with pe- been with people who identify as women mm-hmm. and who have female reproductive parts. Okay. Yeah, I, I very much identify with what you're talking about. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm a couple of years older than you, but um, grew up in that same, obviously, binary gender is male and female. And now that I'm working in this space, it's really important to be inclusive. And sometimes I get caught up in my language and I'm like, ah, like the way that I just asked you that question was not nearly as smooth as it was inside my head. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I I feel like I'm constantly, you know, it's, it's, it's not, it's not fluent. Mm -hmm. So I'm constantly pausing to kind of adjust or think about it. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because I have a 12 year old daughter um, who has been one of my biggest teachers around that. Mm. She identifies as she, her, they, um, but, and she um, is constantly reminding me um, not to misgender people and to use they, them pronouns if I don't know, to identify people by their names. And so that's been a real helpful daily reminder to have, you know, my 12 year old who is fluent mm-hmm. um, in non-binary language uh, be a teacher. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Um, okay. So now there were two conversations that really stayed with me uh, or two topics that really stayed with me after our conversation in your office. So I want to start there and just sort of see where else the conversation goes. The first was about maintaining the sort of elasticity and health of the skin in the genital area for women as we age and as we enter into the menopausal years. And you said some things I hadn't heard before. So uh, I'll just sort of open it up to you because I'm not exactly sure the right question to ask. Sure. Yeah. Well, often what happens, you know, perimenopause typically starts on average, and this is kind of the bell curve, um, but typically starts around age 45 um, and average age of menopause is 51 and menopause is defined by 12 months of not having a period, but there's so many hormonal changes that happen during that time period. And a lot of people who have female hormones also start experiencing changes earlier than age 45 too, sometimes more subtle, and then they become less subtle as they get closer to 50. Um, and I always, the term, the way that I talk about um, kind of I talk about it as a reproductive hormonal evolution. Um, and that's just something that I've kind of come up with as a, as a way of terming it. But um, what I find is that there's kind of the, the slow reproductive hormonal evolution that occurs in people who have female hormones, starting from menarche or when they get the periods through menopause. And for the most part, 
these kind of slow, subtle changes and hormonal fluctuations and changes or shifting happens in kind of these seven to 10 year increments. So that when you're, you know, 30, your cycle um, really looks different than it did when you were 20. But you may not have noticed those changes as they were happening because they're subtle. But then there's times in that reproductive evolution where things have spe- are sped up quite a bit. And it's like no longer subtle. It's pretty <laughs> obvious. Like this is happening to me and I can feel it happening to me. And one of them is obviously during menarche when we're when during puberty, when we're getting our periods, like it's it's pretty obvious. Mm-hmm. There's some serious hormonal fluctuations happening at that point. And then the second one is really during kind of reproduction, breastfeeding. Like if one chooses to have babies, um, that's a very kind of sped up hormonal process that's not subtle. Um, and then the last one is really at the end during uh, perimenopause and menopause, where again, that process is sped up. It's not subtle anymore. And so um, people start, people who identify as women or who have vaginas and vulvas start to feel a lot of changes um, during that time in perimenopause and menopause, um, during that kind of sped up process of hormonal fluctuations um, or the hormonal evolution. And one of them is um, the estrogen starts decreasing. And as the estrogen starts decreasing, like our vulvas and vaginas um, require estrogen in order to, you know, it brings blood flow, it helps. Estrogen is a very um, uh, sex-driven hormone. It, it, it helps drive our desire to want to have sex. Um, and ovulation obviously helps drive our desire to want to have sex. Um, and as ovulation starts to diminish or decrease, or you stop, start ovulating less or more irregularly, um, that can decrease our desire for sex. And also um, the labia or the vulva starts to shift. And so as you have less estrogen in the vulva, it can become um, thinner and drier, um, more likely to have little like um, fissures or tears from like penetrative um, intercourse. And, um, and it can be very painful too. I've had several patients describe it as feeling like shards of glass mm. in their vagina. Um, and that, that's not, you know, if you have, if you putting something in your vagina and it feels like there's shards of glass, you know, you don't really want to do that again. Right. That is very painful. Um, and so like, how can we support people who have vaginas who want to have, you know, a healthy sex life or penetrative intercourse without having some of those symptoms? And so how do you recommend specifically, I remember you talking about coconut oil um, yeah. as sort of an yeah. at home kind of thing. Yeah. There's lots of ways that we can support our vulvas and vaginas. And I think that, um, I, you know, my practice is very holistic and, and kind of integrative. And, and so I'm trained very conventionally in the medical model, but I, my practice is a lot more expansive than that. Um, and so I tend to like to use things that are more natural. Um, and so one of the things is coconut oil. I think one of, one thing that I find a lot in many, you know, I've been doing this for so long. So I've had so many conversations with people about sex <laughs> and I, and I, and I love it and I love the opportunity, but there's patterns in the conversations. You start seeing things like anecdotally things just, you know, you start having the same conversations over and over and over again. And one of the things I do find is that people are not well-educated about different types of lubricants. Mm. And, and so, you know, you just, you or your partner, whoever just goes and finds, you know, a lubricant, maybe a, you know, just an over-the-counter drugstore. Um, 
but we don't necessarily pay attention to the ingredients in the lubricants. And often the ingredients in um, just your standard over-the-counter uh, drugstore, like, you know, I, I don't know if I should say brand name. Oh, that's but, fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So things like Astroglide or KY Jelly um, are not good for especially the perimenopausal and menopausal vulva. Mm. Because all the perimenopausal and menopausal vulva is super sensitive, way more sensitive to, than the like blood filled, like really plump, right? Estrogen rich vulva. And so when you put these chemicals on the perimenopausal and menopausal vulva and the vulva that does not have as much estrogen, estrogen depleted vulva, mm -hmm. um, it can cause a lot of irritation and actually it can contribute to dryness and painful intercourse. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so I have started, you know, it really depends on, you know, who you're having sex with, how you're having sex, you know, like you and I have talked about not all sex is penis and vagina sex. Right. There's lots of sex. <laughs> um, and, and so, you know, and what you're putting in your vagina, what you choose to put in your vagina, like whether it's a penis or whether it is a vibrator. Um, but if you are having penis and vagina sex um, without a condom, um, coconut oil is a fantastic option because I love it because it's a natural antimicrobial. Um, it smells amazing. It's really fun to, to use for foreplay in both partners. Um, and it, um, it really moisturizes both the vulva and the vagina. Mm. So the inside, the outside and the inside. Um, and it can really just help, um, prevent a lot of that, you know, those fissures and those tears. And I get lots of feedback from my patients who have used it and love it. And the partners love it too. I mean, it's like, it's kind of, you can't go wrong with coconut oil. Yeah. Uh, in the sex positive community I'm in, coconut oil is, is a big thing. Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, it is. Oh, yeah. And um, that's funny. Like, people will do uh, like body on body slip and slide kind of stuff. Oh, you know, yes. just coat yourself yes. with coconut oil. And yes. yeah, it's really good stuff. I mean, the only downside that I've come up with with coconut oil is that it's an oil. So it stains towels and sheets. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. I mean, and so I tell people that, you know, put it, put a towel down under you if, if you're concerned about that, but that is really the only downside. I mean, otherwise the feedback is so positive and I, you know, I use it myself as well. I mean, I think it's just a really great natural option. Uh, you had mentioned that to, uh, to me to not just use it during sex, but to use it as sort of like a daily moisturizer. Yes, yes, yes. So you can use it, um, Absolutely. So for my patients who are having atrophy, vulvovaginal atrophy, um, who, and some people like, some people have such severe atrophy that walking is uncomfortable, sitting is uncomfortable. Oh, wow. um, and so, and especially there are also a lot of people who have vaginas who desire um, wanting to have penis and vagina intercourse or some kind of inter, you know, vaginal intercourse, um, but they haven't had partners in a number of years and they're in the perimenopausal or menopausal stage. And often in those cases, what happens is, you know, there's this old adage that if you don't use it, you lose it. Yeah. And I know that's not a very nice way of saying it, but it, it actually is accurate for the vagina. And so if somebody hasn't had sex for a number of years, like penis and vagina sex for a number of years, um, and then they're interested in restarting that process um, and they've gone through menopause or they're in perimenopause, it can be very painful. Um, they can have pretty severe vulvovaginal atrophy. And that is kind of 
uh, a process that you work with somebody on in terms of kind of um, regaining the ability to start kind of receiving into the vagina. And that is, um, and it's very possible to do because the vagina is miraculous and it's elastic and you can do really, you know, it's really an amazing, it's an amazing organ, Um, but that is more of a process. And so um, in terms, that's when sometimes you would use the coconut oil, just like you said, as a daily moisturizer, but you can also use it as a massage on the perineum. So if somebody is like wanting to prepare for um, intercourse, and they're have had you know have pain or have but had intercourse for a number of years, and they're in that stage. Um, they can use coconut oil on the perineum to do a daily massage, along with like um, dilators to start assisting them. I was going to ask you if dilators are something that you recommend. Definitely, I, dilators are really fantastic, especially in that circumstance. And even people who are um, having penis and vagina sex, um, who are like with a long-term partner, whatever it might be, but are having painful sex. Um, I do also recommend using dilators, you know, just by themselves. Mm -hmm. I want to invite you to imagine for a moment what your ideal sex life looks like and feels like. Who are you with? What type of sex do you have together? How do you feel while touching them? And how does your body feel when they touch you? Or maybe you'd like to be having less sex than you're currently having. If you don't know, or if that vision of your ideal doesn't look at all like what's currently going on in your bedroom, I can help. With personalized sex and intimacy coaching, we'll explore where you are, how you got here, where you want to be, and the steps to help you get there. There are no right or wrong answers, just the answers that work for you. I understand that exploring your sexuality and all that goes with it, your body image, your belief in your lovability, and more can be terrifying. Believe me, I sat in the middle of that fire for decades. I know how painful it is. But I also stepped out the other side, stronger, more confident, and more certain of my lovability and desirability. And I want the same for you. I work with couples and one-on-one, whether you've never explored your sexual desires before or you want to explore things you've never done before, like maybe BDSM or non-monogamy, or if you and your partner need some help figuring out how to communicate together so you can have better sex. I'm queer, kinky, and poly-friendly, and I want you to have a deeply fulfilling, intimate life. Together, we can help you get there. For more information and to schedule your free discovery call, visit leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. A new client recently said that before her discovery call, she was extremely nervous, but that I made the experience feel easy and comfortable. So book your free discovery call today at leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. 
there will be some people listening who don't know what dilators are. So can you give a brief explanation of what that is? Yes. So you can buy sets of dilators and they really just look like dildos or like a phallic or penis shaped objects um, that are typically, I would say they're um, probably six to eight inches long and they come in sets of very, very narrow. So like the size of, you know, it, you can, you can choose the diameter, but they can come in, you know, the size of a pen to then larger, right. And in terms of girth or diameter, and then you use those to kind of help your vagina become more elastic to kind of, it, it, it's physical therapy essentially for, or pelvic floor therapy. Yeah. And there's something similar. People may have heard me talk about anal dilators, uh, yes. similar. If you're wanting to work up to having full penetrative anal sex, you can use a similar thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the one other coconut thing that I wanted to mention is you said earlier, if you're having sex without condoms, coconut oil will break condoms down. So if you're using them for pregnancy prevention or STI prevention, that is not a, not a good route to go. Correct. You only want to use coconut oil when you have, when you have a partner who you know their status. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that I remember from our conversation that blew my mind Whoa. <laughs> You're talking about there being an actual hormonal reason that as we get older, we start giving less of a fuck. <laughs> yes. Excuse the pun. I, well, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So can you talk some about that? Definitely. I mean, that's really fascinating to me. And I, I rem- actually remember talking to you about this. You know, I think that our society really focuses on the reproductive age woman. Um, And when you're not reproductive age anymore, um, there's this real kind of cultural um, notion of um, you're you're not really worth anything anymore. You know, you're you kind of become invisible. You don't have anything else to give. Um, And women are so much more than that. And we are so much more than our reproductive status. You know, estrogen itself is a very, uh, um, you know, drives our desire to want to have sex. And so as a reproductive age person who has estrogen, they want to, I mean, they are driven. And so is their partner, especially to want to have sex, like whenever, whenever they're ovulating, it's like this pheromone thing. It's this primal need. It's it's a human instinct. And then when we start to ovulate less or our estrogen starts to decrease, it really can affect our libido and our desire to want to have sex because we are, and also our partner's interest in wanting to have sex with us because we are not driven in that kind of primal way by ovulation and estrogen anymore. And so often what happens in that kind of perimenopausal and menopausal stage is that we have to kind of reframe or change our framework or, or, you know, look at things through a new lens of like, why, how do I want to connect with my partner or partners now? And what does connection look like now? Um, What feels good to me? What is pleasure? What feels good to my partner, partners? And what's important to me around kind of sexuality and intimacy? And, and that really changes, um, as estrogen declines, there's a, there's a, you know, it's, it's a hormonal function. So what about like, there's an entire 
group of people like me who didn't have our sort of sexual coming of age, our sexual awakening until our early 40s, when presumably our estrogen is beginning to decline. I assume there has to be some reason why so many of us, it happens at that time period. Yes. I have a theory. I don't have any evidence. You want my theory? Yes. Most of my, most of my, I don't have a lot of evidence, um, but I have a lot of anecdotal theories. My theory is we just start caring less about what other people think about us. We start coming into who we are as people, as individuals. Like we start realizing, you know, that we have been um, mute, quiet, um, submissive for most of our lives. And we're not willing to do that anymore. And I do think that there is an estrogen component to that. I think I may have shared this with you. I have a colleague of mine, a good friend who used to be my medical director that said to me, I don't remember if I shared this. Um, she's, she's postmenopausal now. And she was like, I, um, she called estrogen the inhibitory hormone you know, like when she, you know, wanted to people please and take care of others and not take care of her own needs and not speak up for what she wanted and needed. But then when she went into menopause and the estrogen declined and decreased, she was like, I don't care what anybody else thinks of me anymore. This is what I want. This is what I need. Um, and I'm going to ask for it and speak up for it. And I, my theory is, is that is what happens in terms of what you're talking about with the sexual awakening that happens, you know, later in life, because that is a, that is a thing for sure. A lot of people will report that their sexuality and their pleasure increases during that time. And I think it's because inhibition decreases and they're just like, this is what I want you to do to my body. This is what feels good. This is what does not feel good to just be able to find your voice. So like the estrogen is the people pleasing hormone. And as that decreases, yeah. it's more okay to just be like, fuck yes. that noise. <laughs> I'm yes. doing what I want to do. Yes. Yeah. And that is why, like, that is the reason why I think that um, perimenopausal and menopausal women are one of our biggest untapped resources mm. because we have so much potential and so much to offer. And, um, and we were overlooked. Mm. And I think that if we could shift that, um, there would be, I, I really do think the world would change. I mean, we would have a completely different um, structure than what we live in right now. I mean, we are really an untapped resource. Yeah. Well, yeah. Like didn't so many cultures have the idea of the crone as the wise woman and right. we've really lost touch with that completely. Right. Mm -hmm. There's so much validity in the lived experience, you know, the wisdom having been, you know, having been through all the things and knowing that there's so much more to be through, to go through and to live through. Um, there's a lot of teaching that could happen during that time. And thinking about the women I know who have been through menopause and say, I still have a great sex life. And I'm curious if you think that those women have a higher level of estrogen in their systems, or if it's just one of those, like, who knows, it's just yeah. some people get it and some people don't. I think it's not, I think for those women, it's probably more related to the fact that they were more pliable in terms of the, the drive, like, um, 
I think when people are less in touch with their bodies and so many women are not in touch with, are not connected to their bodies, largely related to trauma. Um, But I think, and so I think when we're not connected to our bodies and our drive is very, um, our sex drive is very driven hormonally because we don't pay attention to it. We just do it because we rely on that. Right. Um, and then it goes away and we're like, oh, I don't want to do it anymore, but we're not really connected to our bodies. I, I wonder, and again, this is a theory, if the women or the people who have very rich sex lives postmenopausally are people that were already previously uh, very connected and in tune with their bodies prior to menopause and, um, and that they were able to kind of like easily shift their framework from, okay, I'm not being just driven, like blindly driven by estrogen, but I'm being driven by these other things, like wanting to be intimate and connect with my partner by, you know, these other factors. Um, So I wonder about that. Yeah, that's interesting. Like, um, even those of us who didn't want to have children, there is still that biological imperative to reproduce. And so maybe it, it switches from the the need to reproduce to the desire for pleasure, however, that pleasure might show up because it, for it's not penis and vagina insertion for everyone or even dildo and vagina insertion for everyone. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And the one thing that I thought about that just as you were talking is, is the use of birth control pills. Uh So, you know, birth control pills are, are a combination of estrogen and progesterone. And we, and, and one of the things that birth control pills do that the estrogen does is it puts your ovaries in hibernation. So you're not ovulating. Mm. And so what we find is even people who are, you know, 25 or 30 young and reproductive age who are taking birth control pills have a very decreased sex drive because oh. the ovaries are in hibernation. Huh. So that ovulatory process is not happening. So that kind of biological process is not happening that drives that desire to want to have sex. And so does that mean, well, I know you're saying this is a theory, so we don't know what that means, but (laughs) would you postulate that, (laughs) um, that because their ovaries have been in hibernation for all those years, that it then becomes harder for them to, to have that switch in framework that you were talking about? I don't know. I feel like that's more individual. Yeah. I feel like, I feel like there, a lot of this is so individual and having to do, like I said before, with somebody who may have had an experience, you know, like how connected are you with your body? Have you had a traumatic experience in the past? Have you been somebody who's been, you know, sexually assaulted or molested or had negative sexual experiences that make you want to protect your body? Um, so I think there's a lot more to it than just that. I know that you have a real uh, focus on or interest in trauma. Um, Do you have any idea if trauma affects estrogen and how it's produced and the levels at which it's produced? So I I don't think that I don't, I don't think it affects estrogen and that's just kind of a educated guess, Mm -hmm. but what trauma does do and what there are really good studies to support are that it increases cortisol levels, um, kind of chronic increase of cortisol levels. And when we have chronic increases of cortisol levels, that can lead to increased risk for certain chronic diseases. Mm -hmm. And then we have increased risk for chronic diseases um, that can contribute to uh, decreased desire for sex, um, and more physical, um, uh, barriers 
to sex. When you say physical barriers, what do you mean? Pain, Mm. pain, Mm -hmm. mostly. So we do find that um, a history of trauma, uh, like, so um, can result in something called vulvo vaginal like uh, vulvodynia. Have you heard of vulvodynia? I have, yeah. and I really want to know more about it. Yeah. So vulvodynia, or there's also called, it's also called vestibulodynia. Um, so it basically, dynia is just pain and um, the vulva is the outside of the vagina. Um, and there's also a vestibule and the vestibule, I'm putting my hand up like you can see that I know this is a recording. Um, the vestibule is if you look at the, if you looked at a diagram of the vulva, the vestibule is right at the open. It's kind of this area that's right at the opening before the opening of the vagina. Um, and people can develop severe pain, um, in that vestibule and in the vulva, um, who are reproductive age. Mm. So non, you know, kind of hormonal related stuff. And there are much higher rates of vulvodynia and vestibulodynia in people who have a history of trauma. Mm. Fascinating. Much higher. Yeah. So again, trauma, we in, in, you know, conventional medicine, you know, we have always associated trauma with um, kind of mental health stuff. But and you know mental health diagno- mental health diagnoses, but trauma has you know there's like the n- whole neurobiology of trauma mm-hmm. that it impacts our physical being, our biology, the way that our brain functions, the way that our systems function. Um, so it's a it's really um, a whole system impact um, that we don't think about often. And so that is something that, you know, when I mentioned that there's a number of variables, right, it's not just like this one thing that might cause somebody to have a decreased sex drive or to have um, pain with intercourse or, or any of those things. There's always, um, you always want to kind of evaluate for the, you know, have a conversation with somebody because there's often more than just, it hurts when I have sex. Friends, if you love these conversations, I would love your help to keep them going. There are three ways you can participate. Two are free, and one is for listeners who've got a few extra dollars each month. Number one, take a screenshot of this episode right now and post it to your Instagram stories. Tag me in your post, and if it's public, I'll reshare and send you a personal thank you. Word of mouth is the best way to build buzz for an independent show like Good Girls Talk About Sex. And the more people listening, the healthier our collective sexual experiences will become. Number two, don't want the whole world to know you're listening to a show about sex? I get it. Perhaps you heard something in this episode that reminds you of a past conversation with a friend or something you wish your partner knew. Send them a link to this episode and a quick message about why you think they should listen. And number three, if you have the resources to support the sex positive work I do, I'd be grateful for your support at Patreon. Donating the equivalent of a fancy cup of coffee each month might not make a big difference to you, but it makes a huge difference to me. There's absolutely no contract or obligation. You can cancel at any time. Plus, 
I donate 10% of all proceeds to ARC Southeast, an organization that supports women in the Southeast United States to access reproductive services that are currently being legislated out of existence. It's easy to become a patron at patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex. And one more thing, there is a treasure trove of additional audio at Patreon that's free to everyone. You don't even need to have a Patreon account to access them. Just go to patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex to start listening. I appreciate every one of you, whether you're a client, a patron, a social media follower, or a silent listener. I trust you to know what's right for you. Thank you for being here. Now, let's get back to the show. Speaking of pain with penetration, I've had um, I've had a few interviews recently with uh, young women, uh, an eighteen year old, a couple of early twenties, and pretty much. Uh, I, I'm not sure if every one of them has said this to me, but I've heard repeatedly, well, the first time I had sex, it was painful because, you know, it's supposed to be. And mm-hmm. that is a cultural myth that I'm calling bullshit on. Um, mm-hmm. But because part of the reason that we're having pain is because we're not properly lubricated because we're not turned on because nobody knows what the fuck they're doing because we don't right. have good sex education. But that's right. another rant. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Um, yes. But is there, let's assume that a young couple has gone through the process of turn on, the young woman has lubricated. Is there mm-hmm. a sort of physical, like that first time of being penetrated, is there an expectation that it is supposed to be painful? Not that I'm aware of. Yeah. Yeah, I think that I I think that, that I think there's probably the the pain is a lot of fumbling, like you said. Yes. It's just a lot of like I have no idea what I'm doing. You just what do you do? You put the penis in the vagina. Is this how you do it? Right. And and I think that made um, so much worse by <laughs> if you'll excuse me, but oh my god, by religion. Yeah. That says no sex before marriage, right. no anything right. before marriage. So then right. the first time you get in bed, the guy's like, I want to do this. I'm going to bang her. And right. then there's no it's understanding. Extremely painful yes. and extremely bloody at that point. Yeah. Like that's not a good scenario. Um, but if you have like, if you have sex for the first time and you like in the situation that you've described, um, especially when there's connection with, with your own body and, um, and you've had the ability to explore your own body. Um, I think it should not be painful. I mean, there's no reason why it should be painful. There's no like physiological rationale to say that it should be painful. Thank you. That is what I have just sort of, I've believed that for quite a while, (laughs) but I'm really glad to have somebody with actual knowledge confirm it. (laughs) Well, and I do think too, there's this fallacy that, that young women just are like, don't ever need lubrication. Mm. And really there's some numbers out there. If you do a little bit of research that probably 80% of people, of people who have vaginas need lubrication. So a lot of people might think they're well lubricated or they felt feel well lubricated externally, but sometimes internally they're not. Um, and not everybody who has a vagina is like, is able to receive 
um, insertion at the same point in the process. Some people need more time to build up. Some people, you know, to kind of develop, um, to lubricate it, and some people need less. And and also, and that may change depending on circumstances. Um, the majority of people who have sex, 80% of people who have sex do need to use lubrication, wow. even if you're a 20 year old mm-hmm. woman. Yeah. I, one of my very first partners and I, I started late. I didn't have sex for the first time till I was 25, but that first partner was very anti us having lubrication in the bedroom because that somehow meant there was something wrong with one or mm. both of us. Yeah. And I didn't know any better. And so right. it was painful. Every and so time. it was painful for you every time. Yeah. yeah. And imagine if you had been able to use lubrication, that experience probably would Could have, have been, been very different. Very different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Are there any other things that like you hear from your patients that you like common misconceptions that you would like to, to speak to? I, I do hear a lot. I do hear a lot of conversations about um, like, what is intimacy now? What does intimacy mean to me now? What can intimacy look like? And I do also hear a lot of conversations around um, worry about partners. Like I'm worried that I'm not giving my partner what they need, Mm. or I'm worried that I'm not um, a good partner Mm -hmm. because I'm not able to do something like, you know, that I hear that often. There's a lot of other things that go along with perimenopause and menopause around kind of just kind of organs and gravity that can also contribute. And so, you know, if somebody is having painful um, intercourse or just pelvic pain, it is important to have a good evaluation. And I think pelvic floor physical therapy can be huge also in people who are experiencing, it's called dyspareunia, so painful intercourse, um, because it can really help. Um, the process of physical therapy, especially if you find a good physical therapist, can really help you kind of, first of all, be vulnerable with allowing somebody else to put their fingers in your vagina, which is really great. And it also really helps connect your body, your mind to your vagina and your vulva, because you're having somebody putting their fingers in there, talking to you about your anatomy, and so when you can make connections to your anatomy, that really um, connect, makes that brain body connection when we have been, you know, grown up in this culture of disconnection from, especially from our genitals. Um, and so often I'll refer my patients for pelvic floor physical therapy to help connect. Yeah. It's that idea of neuroplasticity. We can just kind of make new grooves around that. If someone um, wants to go see, somebody's having pain and they're hearing you and thinking, I really should go get this checked out, but I'm not super comfortable with my provider. Mm -hmm. What should people be looking for Mm -hmm. when they're trying to find a provider? Um, Is there like, are there some words that are sort of good Mm -hmm. flags on a website? Are there certain questions they should ask? Yeah. So this is a really good question. I, you know, unfortunately there's no keywords. (laughs) (laughs) Um, you can start with your OBGYN or your, uh, like gynecology, gynecological provider, if you want, um, and kind of see what you get from them, but there's no real special words. Mm -hmm. I mean, but what I tell people, this is kind of my medical philosophy in general is like, you have autonomy, you are the director of your body. You get to choose who you see and who you don't see. And it is okay to go see somebody 
and feel them out and decide that you don't want to see them anymore. And it is also okay to go see somebody and then when they, and you not feel good with them and not feel comfortable in that room. And when they want to do a physical exam, you say, no, thank you. I'm not comfortable with this. Mm. And so it is really important to always know that you have autonomy over your body and the choice to choose yes for the exam or no for the exam. You never need to go through with it if you don't feel comfortable with it. And you just keep going until you find somebody that you are. Mm. Um, you also, one indicator, and unfortunately, this is like what you have to wait until you get in the exam with a provider to know whether they, whether they are um, conscious or not, is they should be asking you for consent before they touch your body. That was, I have to say, coming to see you was a revelation because you literally asked for consent every time you were going to put your hand on my body. Even though I had been in the room with you at that point for 45 minutes, you still asked every time you were going to put your hand on my body. I'd never experienced that before. And that needs to be, I mean, that is, that needs to be the standard of care. Mm -hmm. I should never touch your body without your consent. Mm -hmm. Even if I'm listening to your heart, even if like it's, it seems like a benign, simple thing. um, It is not, it's not safe. It's not acceptable um, for me to touch your body without consent. And so um, I always say that that's a red flag for me with providers. Um, And I always say as well that use your voice when you're in a room with a provider. It is um, that idea of do what the doctor says is so old school. We don't have to go there anymore. It's a collaborative conversation. And so if somebody starts to touch you, without your consent, you can say, could you please ask my consent Mm. before you touch me? Oh, wow. And something else that I just learned in the last few months is that you don't have to consent to being weighed. Correct. I do. I I actually also don't weigh my patients. I, I, I say that I de-emphasize weight. (laughs) Um, I will ask for a stated weight um, sometimes at the initial visit when they're first establishing with me, but I do not weigh my patients um, unless there's like a medical need or the patient requests um, being weighed. Um, absolutely. You can, you can, um, say no to whatever you want to say no to. There's this idea in medicine that you just have to do everything they tell you to do. Um, and I, I think that's very, uh, I think that's set in this very patriarchal, you know, again, dogmatic culture that we have that, you know, this person is the authority or this system is the authority. And therefore I have to do everything they tell me to do. And frankly, I think that can be extremely triggering for the majority of women who have been traumatized in their lifetime, which is probably at least 50% of us. At least. Um, yeah. Um, so I, I, it's one of my biggest um, soapboxes. Um, and I wish I could just scream it off the rooftop, rooftops that you never need to do. Um, you, you have full autonomy. You, you choose what you say yes to and what you say no to. And if you feel uncomfortable at any point in the process, you can walk out the door. I wonder in terms of like, you know, sure, there's not a code word that people put on their website, but if there's a way that when you're calling the office to like, to find out if, if a provider might be a good match for you to ask what their, um, what their practices are around consent. Well, and one of the things that I think is, you know, I do think it's important to look for like trauma-informed providers or trauma-aware providers. When you call, you can't ask, is this a trauma-aware, a trauma, um, 
uh, informed practice. Um, and I think it's becoming a little bit of a buzzword. Yeah. And so a lot more people are using that terminology who may not really know what that means or may not embody that type of care. They might have done a weekend warrior kind of class. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. (laughs) I think that some people are just more naturally trauma informed or trauma aware than others. And I think there is some common sense to it. And there's some, there's a lot of intuition to practicing that way. Um, And also there's a lot of like, how would I want to be treated? And how do I, you know, this, this kind of sense of compassion, like, I would want to be treated this way and I'm going to treat my patients this way. Yeah. Yeah. Maya, this has been amazing. Thank you so much. Um, Is there anything we haven't covered that you think we should? I can't think of anything. Will you come back? This is great. Will I come back? (laughs) Sure. Absolutely. Excellent. Okay. That's it for today. Before we go, I want to remind you that the things you may have heard about your sexuality aren't true. You are worthy. You are desirable. You are not broken. As a sex and intimacy coach, I will guide you in embracing the sexuality that is innately yours, no matter what it looks like. To set up your free discovery call, go to leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. If you have questions or comments about anything you've heard on the show, call and leave a message at 720-GOOD-SEX. Full show notes and transcripts for this episode are at goodgirlstalk.com. And you can follow me at goodgirlstalk on the socials for more sex positive content. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or if you're using another podcast app, go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash goodgirls. While listening to this show is free, producing it is not. If my work is meaningful to you, and you have a few dollars to support it each month, I'll gratefully accept your patronage at Patreon. Find out more and become a community member at patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex. Good girls talk about sex is produced by me, Leah Carey, and edited by Gretchen Kilby. I have additional administrative support from Lara O'Connor. Transcripts are produced by Jan Asiello. Until next time, here's to your better sex life. <laughs>